Welcome to Word on the Street, a weekly podcast from Barclays UK, where our experts help ordinary investors make sense of the latest news and events impacting the world's financial markets. This week, we discuss the Bank of England's emergency intervention to shore up UK pensions, the consequences of higher interest rates, and what it all means for UK investors. With Sarah Gresty, Head of Investments, Chris Bamford, Senior Portfolio Manager, and Will Hobbs, Chief Investment Officer. Welcome back to Word on the Street. It is the UK that continues to be the centre of markets and news at the moment, so that is where we are going to focus our conversation today. And in fact, we're going to be a bit more specific than that. It's the extraordinary convulsions in the long end of the UK government bond market and the resulting reverberations into the world of pension investing that have literally transfixed the world in these last 24 hours. Luckily, we have just the expert on hand to make sense of this, Chris Bamford, who is an expert in UK government bonds, amongst other things. Chris, welcome back. And as always, we have Will with us today. So, right, let's start with some basics, Chris. Gilts. Why are they called gilts and why are the moves of the last week so extraordinary? Thanks, Sarah. So, gilts, yeah, I mean, they're called gilt-edged stocks. They're issued by the UK government. And in theory, they're one of the safest assets in the, uh, certainly in the UK and in the global bond markets. And, you know, this has been an incredibly unusual period for the UK fixed income market. It looks like September is going to be the worst month for UK gilts on record. For what it's worth, I think September 86 was the month to beat, where 10-year gilt yields increased by 126 basis points. Prior to that intervention from the Bank of England yesterday, 10-year government bonds had increased this month by 1.7% to 4.5%. And now that's on top of another similar move that's played out over eight months of the year. The action from the Bank of England has stabilised the market, and so we are now below that level, sitting at around 4.2%. Now, the moves that we've seen over the last week, though, have been astonishing and have been multiple times what we would normally expect to see on any given day. This is certainly not normal environment, but I'm going to try and put this into some form of context. 95% of the time, the daily move in UK government bond yields would be, you know, plus or minus 10 basis points, so 0.1% up or down. 30-year gilt yields have increased by 1.2% in just three days, and then fell by about 1.1% yesterday, following the announcement from the Bank of England. So really exceptional times. Well, that's a really helpful start. Thanks, Chris. But now can we move on to a more complicated question? Can you help us understand why and how this impacted the pension industry? I understand there was kind of a negative spiral at work, but I'd be interested to hear how this played out. So I will try and keep this simple. The Bank of England stepped in yesterday uh, to support the gilt market by buying long maturity government bonds up until the 14th of October. They're also going to delay the unwind of quantitative easing that would have involved actually selling gilts that was due to begin this week, begin next week, actually. They've really done this to restore stability in the government bond market that was starting to cause real issues for some of these pension funds. Whenever these extreme events occur, we often see these as weak points in the system. It's another example of the unexpected consequences that occur. Now, pension funds came under pressure They've got long-term liabilities to their pensioners and they look to remove as many of the market risks as possible. So we call this liability management. Now, it can get a little bit complex, but as part of this liability management, pension funds often receive cash or collateral from their counterparties when gilt yields fall. But by contrast, when gilt yields rise, they have to pay collateral to these counterparties. Normally, this activity doesn't really drive headlines or markets. However, given the extreme moves that we have seen in the gilt yields in such a short period of time, 
there was a fear that they could have run out of liquidity. The pension funds would then have had to sell gilts to fund these collateral calls. Now, pension funds, as we all know, are very large holders of UK government bonds. And so this extra selling may have depressed prices even further, leading to further demands for collateral. Hence the negative spiral, or even doom loop, as some commentators have called it. So by stepping in, the Bank of England has had two effects. Firstly, as I mentioned, longer maturity government bond yields have fallen, which will reverse some of the pressure on pension funds. And secondly, long maturity government bonds are far more stable today. And so the action has put a halt to this negative spiral. Okay, so that was pretty complicated. But thanks, Chris, for explaining that. Will, I'm going to turn to you next. Now, the Bank of England has been stepping in and starting to buy the bonds again, looking to restore some order. What's your take on what's happening here? Well, it's a nasty spot for the Bank of England. I'm glad we've got Chris to explain all of that, I have to admit. I haven't had enough sleep to try and uh, to try and talk you through. Um, I don't think even if I had a full night's sleep, I'd be able to explain all that as easily as Chris has. Uh, just on the, on, 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 uh, the guilt edge stock point, just to sort of going back to the beginning in a sense, and sorry, I'm not answering your question, but I noticed one of, one of the other, I never seem to answer your question, you could say, but one of the things I think that's really important that gets lost with regards to sort of government debt, you know, lending to governments, and it sounds like an odd thing to say, but, you know, governments, particularly in the UK, have a monopoly on violence and tax raising. And those are really important with regards to your ability to service debt over long periods of time. You couldn't imagine me. And also, you know, they're, they're, you know, with that in effect, they don't have a lifespan, do they? I mean, the UK government, you can lend to the UK government for uh, not just tens of years, but much longer than that. Uh, whereas you wouldn't bother lending me money for 100 years at 3%, certainly not now. But anyway, I digress. So the Bank of England, uh, and Chris has really sort of, you know, pointed this out already, but you know, it's a really complicated spot for the Bank of England because in a way, you know, you've got this budget which has drawn a lot of headlines. And so for them to be coming in and buying bonds, it is, um, you know, it opens them up to accusations that they're sponsoring the new government's fiscal plans in a sense, uh, you know, by issuing, uh, you know, creating balance sheet to, uh, to help fund those plans. So it's a quite a difficult spot for the Bank of England, I think. And the big question here is that, you know, they've, they've done it for a limited amount of time, very deliberately. They're just trying to restore market stability, market order, you know, as Chris pointed out. So this is kind of functioning of markets kind of piece, not, you know, trying to influence interest rates as such or directly. But, you know, the, the, the interesting thing will be when it stops. Um, so I think, what is it, 13 days, Chris, that they've said that they're going to do it for? Yeah, it will It will, It will. definitely be interesting to see what happens when the programme ends. I think it's uh, the 14th of October is the intention. You know, the Bank of England has committed to restoring financial stability. However, the Bank of England is still committed to tightening financial conditions and reducing the size of the balance sheet. They expect to stop buying assets, as I say, in mid-October and begin actively selling assets at the end of October. And as you say, it'll be really difficult to see how the situation will evolve. But it's possible we could see continued price pressure and volatility return when the bank stops actively supporting the market. Now, the bank will hope that by then the market will have adjusted its expectations and more normal dynamics will resume. That said, given the repricing that we've seen in developed market government bonds, I suppose combined with our medium-term outlook, the asset class is looking more attractive than it has done in a very long time. This is something that we're reflecting somewhat through our tactical asset allocation, where we have a small overweight to government bonds, although at the moment that is primarily through the US. Okay, that's interesting, Chris. So maybe what's next for the Bank of England? The other thing that people are talking about is potentially emergency hikes. And the market seems to be pricing in some pretty large moves in November. What's your take on that? So 
up to now, the Monetary Policy Committee has been moving more slowly than some of its peers, like the Fed in the US and the ECB in Europe. Uh, the Bank of England raised rates by half a percent at the last meeting, although some members wanted to increase by sort of three quarters of a percent. And I suppose the rationale was that they wanted to take a more cautious approach. They wanted to get visibility on the new fiscal framework. Following the meeting, there were obviously some very strong calls earlier in the week from uh, from the market for an emergency hike, but the Bank of England has more or less ruled that out. So it's likely we're going to have to wait until November for the next change in policy. In the interim, we're more likely to see more targeted responses uh, like the uh, yield curve control that we, we're effectively seeing now. So right now, the market is pricing in about a 1.5% rate hike in November, followed by 1% in December. So that would bring the base rate close to 5% by the end of the year. Uh, the market is also suggesting that the Bank of England could get to around 6% by the middle of next year. Now, it's worth, again, thinking about that in the context of where we were just a month ago. Uh, a month ago, we were expecting to end the year at around 3% with a peak of around 4%. So it's fair to say market expectations have moved a very long way in the last month. That is certainly true, isn't it? I mean, I, I, yeah, but there's got to be some doubt about the, whether they make it that far you know, I guess in our opinion, I mean, so Barclays Capital obviously have a very high quality UK economics team, uh, among many other quality teams that they have. Uh, and they're among those who, and it, this just gives you a sense of the range of market expectations around that, the, the sort of, you know, the average market expectation. So they are expecting the Bank of England to significantly undershoot this you know, by a margin. I think they've got 75 basis points by November. So that's way below. And they see the Bank of England stopping a long way before that sort of five, six percent that sort of seems to be where things have moved to. I mean, the point as usual here is that, uh, you know, we'd go back to that idea, the greater the confidence you hear someone predict the future, and that's not what they're doing, the less you should trust them. Uh, those, you know, the, the, just the sheer range of expectations. And as Chris said, how much it's moved, that should give you some hesitation as to you know, how much confidence you have in the short-term outlook for where interest rates go. I know that's a very familiar wishy-washy message from me, but I think it's right this time. Yeah, and I think, you know, we're also hearing a similar message from some of our third-party bond managers. Uh, one of the, the nice things about my job is I get to spend a lot of time talking to investors from across different, different parts of the world, but, you know, specialists in the UK. And, you know, the sentiment that I'm picking up is that you know, the view is that rates will rise more quickly, but certainly not to the levels that, that have been priced in. And that's why we're seeing managers actually increase their exposure to UK interest rate risk. Um, you know, one UK manager that we know very well has actually moved overweight UK interest rates recently. Now, that's probably the first time that they've moved overweight since 2010. And even then, they were only briefly overweight. So it's, um, you know, I spent a long time talking and dealing with these, these specialists and this is a very unusual period. Say that again. <laughs> yeah, it's interesting. So I think wherever we end up with the end of these interest rate rises, there is a kind of associated concerns and knock-on impact into mortgages, which is a lot for UK consumers to absorb. Will, what do you think that we should be thinking about from a mortgage perspective? Well, I mean, yes, Sarah. And, you know, we've been talking about this for a while in terms of, you know, even before this sort of surge in, in, in interest rates, we sort of you know, we've been worrying about the effect, not just, you know, even after the price caps of what happens to UK real disposable income in the course of the next few quarters. And even if you've sort of, you know, even though, you know, your effect on mortgage rates is obviously staggered, because not everyone suddenly is going to uh, choke down 6%, you know, or whatever uh, rates on their, uh, on their debt. But uh, over the next few years, 
and even the staggered effect that makes for ugh, you know what's got to be seen as an even trickier macroeconomic backdrop for the UK economy than even imagined quite recently. You know, I don't like being gloomy, but that 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 is you know the short term outlook for the UK economy remains very tricky. It's interesting, isn't it? I think the question everybody seems to be asking at the moment is, with all that's happened in the markets, what do I do with my own finances? So, you know, do I pay down my mortgage? Do I invest more? If I invest, what do I invest in? So, Will, what would you say? Well, what are you saying when clients and colleagues ask you that? Well, it's a great question, isn't it? And, and you know, first of all, you know, a disclaimer, uh, you know, I've obviously... I want to steer clear of any uh, wealth planning advice. I'm not a wealth planner. I'm not a tax expert. Uh, we do have lots of experts here, obviously. That's it's great. And uh, they have a very enviable batch of expertise, in my opinion. Uh, but as you know, to be, to be able to have you know conversations meaningfully at that level, there's a load more personal information to put into the equation other than just kind of moves in asset prices and associated risks. However, I'll make three points. So... First of all, if you think about what you're asking, in a sense, is, you know, can a diversified batch of investments beat the available interest rate that either you're paying or you're being charged or you can get? Uh, And that's often a question that you're sort of going to get more broadly. I think the point here is, first of all, asset allocation, you know, the the bit that JP and team and Chris, remember, plays a role in this as well, but all sorts of other sort of experts, uh, they weigh up we weigh up opportunities everywhere, not just in isolation, uh, but how they interact and mix with other opportunities. Now, uh, this is, you know, the act of lending to governments, the act of lending to corporates, emerging market governments, you know, uh, stocks, commodities, you know, all of these things, everything in the asset class toolkit, it's weighed up in how it interacts and what the opportunities are at that particular level. Now, this is a fiendishly complex piece. It's a job performed by people who don't get to see the light of day very much uh, and they eat kind of unplayable statistics for breakfast. So specialists, as usual, that word we use a lot. The second thing I think to point out is that real interest rates this year have changed substantially. And that's really like the big thing globally that's really upset the sort of global economic or global capital markets as, uh, you know, Apple cart, which is that inflation adjusted interest rates in the US have just soared higher and back to levels we haven't seen in quite a while. Now that has changed what the attraction of certain sort of the relative attraction of certain investments. So property is one uh, where there's over time, there is seen to be a relationship between residential property prices and real interest rates. It was a Bank of England study that suggested that, you know, 1% rise in real interest rates was could be linked to uh, a 20% fall in property prices over time. I'll be clear there over time. It doesn't happen all in one globe. And it doesn't, you know, it doesn't have to be as precise as that. That's just a sort of, you know, a long term kind of baseline, I guess. But also things like gold um, and other sort of types of cash flow, they look very different in this kind of light. So just remember that the rising real interest rate story, that changes your expectations with regards to, to certain types of investments. So for many years, you've been able to live in a house and uh, that house has doubled up as a, if you own it, that's you know, if you're lucky enough to own it, that's doubled up as a kind of investment vehicle because prices have moved so fast over so long that that's been a really attractive way to uh, to just do investment as well as living in it. Now, you can't live in a diversified portfolio. Of course, we make that point. But actually, the relative appeal of a diversified batch of assets tethered to the global economy rather than just one single street in the UK, the, the relative attraction may have increased a little bit over this last few uh, weeks and even you know this year. 
I think the third point to make is, you know, the cool heads among you, and I'm sure you're all a lot cooler than I am in, in any aspect that one can measure coolness, but cool heads will continue to look to the future and find that in a way, the call option on future human productivity offered by diversified access to the world's capital markets, that's pretty attractively priced at the moment. How you organize it's important, but I refer you back to point one there. It's quite complicated. But I think this is, you know, this is a really, really important discussion about how you use your, you know, your precious savings and the precious resources, you know, financial resources available to you. I mean, I agree with everything you've said there, Will. And, and you know, as, as, as you know, I mean, we refresh our sort of long term strategic asset allocation regularly. And certainly at the next refresh, I, I, I fully expect that fixed income government bonds, which we're talking about today, will continue to play an important role alongside other asset classes within our diversified portfolio. But the thing for investors probably to think about is that, you know, it is important to remain diversified. It's it's important as well not to look at what's happening today and assume that will continue into the future. The reality is always going to be different. It's always going to be a range of possibilities. And, you know, the future, as we said, is very difficult to predict. So again, it comes back to that point, stay diversified across both asset classes and geographies. I would say impossible to predict. I agree with everything. I like, <laughs> I like your optimism. Difficult. Uh, but yeah, no, that's a good point, Chris. Yeah, I like the optimism as well. I do like to try and end on an upbeat note where we can. So, Will, is it fair to say the UK and neither, and nor the rest of the world is doomed? No, never. There's good. always a range of outcomes. I think that's really sort of, you know, that's that Chris's point is entirely right. It's so easy at times like this to imagine kind of like a descent into the abyss because uh, that's kind of what it feels like, doesn't it, sometimes with all the sort of headlines going on and, you know, you've got huge troubles in China, you know, uh, people worrying about what's called a Minsky moment in China where you have, you know, the debt buildup is finally paid back with a real sort of, you know, financial crisis. Uh, so the wobbles in the property market are perhaps sort of, you know, really troublesome there. You've got the, you know, the headlines in UK, Europe and the US too. So, you know, we're at a really difficult moment and we're coming from, you know, several really difficult and extremely tragic moments. And there may be more of that to come in the short term. But remember that, you know, that old story about the not extrapolating to the downside, which Chris just pointed out, that often these things don't move in a straight line, that humankind has tended to be quite good at finding the answers. And these moments of unrest and upheaval and difficulty can often be attractive foundations for the next surge. And I think certainly, funny enough, uh, you know, I met, I was lucky enough to meet someone over lunch, who is a uh, U.S. investor and looks a lot at U.S. U.S. companies, and he was and he travels to the U.S. a lot, and he was pointing out he's just beneath the headlines. He was pointing out that you know he really feels that the U.S. is moving on to the next industrial transformation, uh, that the sort of levels of innovation and the excitement about what's coming in the U.S. Again, part of that is the technological change, artificial intelligence, and how that changes almost everything from drug discovery onwards. You know, we talk about that a lot, but other technology as well. And the whole point is that you've got to be in it to win it. We keep on saying that. The best way to do that, I think, uh, and I would say this, it's self-serving, but it's it's a diversified, you know, try and get as much of the world's amazing population working on behalf of your savings day and night. And over time, our, our expectation is that that's, that's probably a, uh, uh, a high probability bet. And it's a good moment to sort of look beyond the chaos uh, and see into that, that hopefully brighter future but yes it's it's a difficult moment and uh, if you do have questions and stuff I would I would just sort of reiterate I know I've sort of banged on a bit but if you have questions um, stuff you want us to answer you know 
concerns you have, do please write in and we can sort of cover that on the podcast and try and, because uh, if you're thinking it, there's no doubt that others are too. Yeah, brilliant. Thanks, Will. And yeah, that's good. Love to have some questions and topics that people would like us to cover. But today, thank you, Chris. Thank you, Will, for helping us make sense of this current moment. And thank you, listeners, for joining us. I look forward to speaking with you all again soon for another Word on the Street. All investments can fall as well as rise in value, and their past performance is not a reliable indicator of future performance. This podcast is not a personal investment recommendation.